Continuing our working our way through 1 Samuel. We've already seen in our study of 1 Samuel how King Saul is showing signs of schizophrenia. Not that that's what's wrong with him, but he definitely is showing those type of characteristics. Where one minute he is, you know, throwing spears, trying to pin David to the wall. And the next minute he's saying he's sorry and he's never going to do that again. And then the next minute, you know, he's off into a jealous rage. And we see this up and down cycle that we'll continue to see through the, the next several chapters in dealing with his life. But as we look at this episode in the life of David, we should keep in mind that God from eternity had purposed to bless David and to use him mightily. And we've seen God establish David as a man after his own heart while he was a shepherd boy tending his father's sheep. And we've seen God call him and anoint him to be the king over Israel. We've seen God raise him up to be the deliverer of Israel as he took down the great Goliath giant, the great giant Goliath. And we've seen God preserve David's life and give him a song in his heart and gladness, even in the face of death. But at this particular point in the story, in the narrative, at this particular point here in chapter 20, we find David going through a trial which tested his faith and his endurance to the limit. And every outward circumstance seemed to be to contradict God's plan for David's life. His circumstances made God's promises look like lies. And you know, that can happen to us at times as well. That we can find ourselves in those circumstances where things just aren't coming together and we start to wrestle. But it's in those times, it's in those difficult times like that, that we have to decide what we are going to be ruled by. Are we going to be ruled by our circumstances that presently make no sense to us? Or are we going to be ruled by what we know to be true about God? You see... All of us, we struggle with doubts and things that we don't understand about God, about situations in our life. I've had times in my life where I have been in utter confusion and utter despair at times where I felt abandoned by God, where I found myself just wondering, where are you, Lord? What is happening and why is this happening? But it's in those moments that we have to cling to what we know to be true about the Lord. And what do we know? We know that God is faithful. We know that God keeps his promises. We know that true and righteous are his judgments. And we know that he's always working things out in your life, in my life, with our best interest at heart. And he's always working things out that, that, are, that are going to ultimately pertain to his glory and his honor in our lives. I've been walking with the Lord now for 29 years. And you know what? He's never let me down once. 29 years. 
And we look at the, the stories in the Bible. And they're meant to show us as we look at them, even in a story like Job, that you can go for, you know, 30 some odd chapters of just being like, man, this is depressing. And man, look at what's happening to Job. But then you see in the end there that God did not abandon him, that God did not let him down, that God was faithful. And that God always is working with our best interest at heart. And that his timing is always on time. When I look back in my own life at some of those times and some of the the difficult times that I went through, I see exactly now hindsight. You know, they say it's 2020 and I look back now and I see exactly what God was doing. I look at it. It was brilliant. It was perfect. And those things have turned out better than I could have ever imagined and seeing how God worked. Well, Joseph, he, he experienced the same realization. Remember what he said to his brothers when it was all said and done, and he's second in command there in Egypt, and his brothers come because of the famine, and, and finally when he's revealed to them, and they're all you know, scared that he's going to take revenge, and what does he say to them? He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, to save many. And David will look back at this time in his life and he will see and he will understand God's hand in this. He'll look back at this time in his life and he will see and he will understand how God was actually going to use this time to make David into Israel's greatest king, second only to Jesus himself. But sometimes in the midst of these times, it can be tough. And in this chapter, we see David struggling Now, it's a comfort to know, it comforts my heart, to know that a man like David could go through such times like this, where we see him, in one sense, buckling under the pressure. It blesses my heart and encourages my heart because I find myself doing that as well. But we also need to learn, not just identify with David, but we also need to learn from David and we need to learn from not just what he does but what he doesn't do and so we pick up the story here in chapter 20 verse 1 it says then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and went and said to Jonathan what have I done what is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life And so Jonathan said to him, by no means, you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. And then David took an oath again and said, your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Now, I don't know if, if, if you can sense it, but I, I hear a, a tone in David's voice here. As I read this, I hear a tone and it's a it's a tone of despair. It's a tone of of being uh, uh, uptight. As the pressure is building, David isn't handling this very well. And because David was not as conscious of God's presence and protection in this particular time as he was as his own fear. You know, Alan Redpath, in his book, The Making of a Man of God, 
He makes this statement. It's a powerful one. He says, fear is the greatest enemy of our faith. And David is in a time right now in his walk with the Lord where, where fear, he, he's, he's despairing, he's confused, he's uptight. And fear is starting to infiltrate his heart. Fear causes despair. It causes us to, to get all worked up. Fear blows things out of proportion in our lives. My girls, all of them, are afraid of bugs. And it's interesting, little Amanda, you know, she'll come and say, Dad, there's a giant bug in my room. He's this big, you know. That's what fear does, you know. It has a tendency to blow things out of proportion. The giant bug, it's five feet long, you know, type of a thing. Fear, if you have a fear of heights, a cliff that's 20 feet above the water can look like it's 80 feet because that's what fear does. It has that tendency to blow things out of proportion. And at this point in David's life, the pressure is building so bad that he's beginning to even doubt his friends. He's even beginning to doubt Jonathan as he says, what have I done? What is the iniquity in me that your father should treat me like this? Jonathan, please tell me what is going on. Now, Jonathan tries to encourage David in verse 2 by saying, look, my dad would tell me. If he's still out to get you, he would tell me. Remember, in chapter 19, Saul promised Jonathan. He said to him, I'm I'm sorry, I'm wrong. I'm not going to pursue David anymore. He promised that he would leave him alone. But it was short-lived. Well, in verse 3, David gets real and he says, look, you know. He's saying to Jonathan, look, man, get real. You know there is but one step, one step between me and death. You know, that's true of all of us here tonight. There's just but one step between us and death. The Bible says that our very Days are numbered by the Lord. You don't know of whether or not tonight might be for you your last breath. That's why it's so important, so important that we live our lives on a daily basis, living, living with eternity in view, living for the Lord. I shared this before, I don't know which service, or so I'm going to share it again. If it was a Wednesday night, I'm sorry. But one of my favorite Olympic moments was seeing Rulon Gardner, the great big Greco-Roman wrestler. After he won the bronze medal, he's there, and he's got the flag in one hand. He's got the gold medal or the bronze medal around his, his uh, neck there. And, and he's on the mat, and his shoes are off, and they're there in front of him, and tears are coming down his face. And that's what a, the, the Greco-Roman wrestlers do when they're going to retire. They take their shoes off, and they leave them on the mat. And the idea is this. He said, what I was seeking to communicate by that action was that I left it all on the mat. That's how we want to live our lives. Leaving it all on the mat. Never knowing when our day might come. A step between us and death. 
This reveals here David's discouragement. He knows that Saul has attempted to kill him many times. And it seems that Saul is not going to quit until David is gone. And David feels that death is inevitable for him. That he's walking on this slippery plank over a canyon. And it's there, verse 4, that Jonathan said to David, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. Now, I find this refreshing. Because Jonathan is seeking to encourage his friend. I think many of us would have been prone and tempted to rebuke David, to say something like, man, where's your faith, brother? Come on, what are you doing here? What's wrong with you? But Jonathan is a true friend. And he says, when he sees the despair in David's heart and he realizes what David is saying is true, he says, look, I'm with you. I'm with you. You can count on me. I will be by your side. Whatever it is, I'm here. It's great to have friends like that. It's great to have those type of people who are going to come alongside of you in your moment of despair, in your hours of defeat, in your times of difficulties. That's what Jonathan was being here to David. We pick it up in verse 5. And David said to Jonathan, indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. And if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. And if he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? David's like, look, just if, 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 if there's iniquity, if I've sinned, just get it over with. Just kill me yourself right now. But Jonathan said, far be it from you. For if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? And then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me or what if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. And so both of them went out into the field. And then Jonathan said to David, the Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And the Lord will be with you as he has been with my father. And you shall not only show me kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And so Jonathan made a covenant with David, with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Let's pause there for a minute. Now this shows that Jonathan had greater faith in God's promises than David did at this time. Jonathan is saying here that he knows that David is destined to be the next king in Israel. 
And in his response, Jonathan makes David commit himself to a covenant that you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. We've noted this before, but in that day when one royal house replaced another, it was common for the new royal house to go and to kill all of the descendants of the old royal house in case there was an insurrection. That was a common thing that happened in that day amongst kings. And so what, what Jonathan was saying here is, you know, look, when you become king, I need you to promise that you're going to be true and, and that you're going to preserve, you know, my house, that you're going to take care of my descendants, that you're not going to, you know, uh, have vengeance upon them. Jonathan knew that one day David and his descendants would rule over Israel, and he wants David to promise that his descendants will not kill or mistreat the descendants of Jonathan. And so they make this covenant with each other. And David agreed to care. They agreed to care for one another. And Jonathan agreed to care for David in the face of Saul's threats. And and, and David agreed to care for Jonathan. And and here's these two guys. They're best friends. And they're, they're making this pact. And they're hoping for the best. But they're preparing for the worst. And they're just in that place where, where you know, they're just putting everything in order. So they make this covenant with one another. We pick it up in verse 18. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by the stone of Ezel. And then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And there I will send a lad saying, go, find the arrows. And if I expressly say, look, the arrows are on the side of you, then get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say thus to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you. Go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter which you have spoken of, indeed, the Lord between you and me forever. And then David hid in the field, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat at the feast. David had to wait for that fateful that faithful moment when a matter of a few yards, the shot of an arrow, would decide his future. Either he would go back to Saul's house, he would go back to the comforts of the palace, he would go back to, the, to the, the comforts of Jonathan's friendship. He would go back to familiar and secure surroundings. Or he would go into exile without a friend to turn to. Having to cast himself totally upon the mercy of God. One of these would be God's path for David. One of these two options would be God's path for David that would take him to the throne. The throne in Israel. Now I want you to note this. The decision was completely out of David's hands. All he could do. All he could do was stand by a stone and wait for an arrow that would either point him to the palace or to the wilderness. That's what was laid out before him. The pressure of the circumstance brought David to that place where the decision was not his to make. 
And that's exactly what God so often does in the midst of our circumstances. They drive us to the place where we cannot decide the way that we should go. But it's God who's going to decide the way. Now, in verse 19, David was told to wait at the stone of Ezel. If you're taking notes, the stone of Ezel means the stone that shows the way. It's the stone of destiny is what that stone of Ezel. And he was to go and to wait there. He was to wait for the message. He was to wait for the direction. He was to wait for, for the instruction. He was, he was to wait for what the signal was going to be. Wilderness or palace, which is it going to be? And for every Christian in every circumstance of life, we have a stone to wait at. We have a stone that we are to wait at. A stone that shows the way. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 34, he tells us that it's a stone cut without hands. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Peter calls it a living stone. In Isaiah 28, verse 16, Isaiah calls it a foundation stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. You see, the stone of Ezel for you and I, the stone that shows the way, it's Jesus Christ. It's our Lord Jesus, the rock that is higher than I. I wonder as David waited if that stone became perhaps a pillow for him. That maybe as he waited there in the night that he rested his head upon it. And what a beautiful picture if that is the case. As we are to wait and to rest upon our Lord. To rest in him. Leaning upon him. Alan Redpath, again in his book, The Making of a Man of God, gives this insight. Jesus is our stone of destiny, rooted in a rugged hillside outside the city of Jerusalem. And so there we understand that he bore our burden. He is the great burden bearer. The pressure of the burdens we face, no matter what they may be, are rolled away when we bring them and leave them at his feet. I ask you tonight, are you in a predicament that you are unable to? To turn this way or to turn that way? Note this. If you find yourself in this position where it's like, I'm stuck. I don't know which way I'm going to go. I've got a palace on this side, a wilderness on this side. I don't know which way to go. That's a great position to be in. You know why? Because you are in a position of complete and utter dependency upon the Lord. You are in a position where your hands are off the situation and and you're in a place where all you can do is say, God, it's up to you. It's up to you. All you can do is what David did as he took his stand at the stone of destiny and he waited. He waited. It's a good thing to be in a position like that when all you can do is to take your stand at Calvary's cross and to wait. And to wait, knowing that your life is in his hands. When all you can do is come to Christ and wait, you are in a great place. We looked at this on Sunday in our study in Nehemiah. All the the exhortations where in the Bible it tells us it's a good thing to wait upon the Lord. That it results in strength. It results in security. It results in direction. But you know what? There's so many other paths that are a lot more attractive than this one. 
There's so many other paths where, humanly speaking, there are so many more alternatives that are more attractive to us than God's way. But there is only one way for you and I that leads to the throne, that leads to the promise that God has for you. And we need to let God decide that path. We need to embrace that path. You see, there's only one right path to accomplish God's work in your life. And we need to die to that temptation to run or to meander or to pursue some other alternative where we say, this just seems too hard. I'm going to go over here. Not to exhaust him, but again, Redpath put it well when he said this, a throne is God's purpose for you. A cross is God's path for you. And faith is God's plan for you. A throne is God's purpose. A cross is the path, though. That's what gets us to that place. The the Bible talks about our trials that, that were placed in the fire. They're like fiery trials. It's like being in the furnace. And we're like a piece of gold. And what happens when the gold is in the furnace? You know, all the impurities rise to the surface. It's the cross. It's the difficulty that we find ourselves going through, but it's part of God's plan to get us to that place, to take us to that place where he's molding us and he's shaping us. And so David finds himself in this place where all he can do is wait, all he can do is rest. Verse 25, we pick it up. Now, the king sat on his seat as at other times. On a seat by the wall, and Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something had happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he is unclean, he thought. And it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? And so Jonathan answered Saul, And said, David earnestly asked permission for me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, please let me go, for our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. And now, if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. And therefore, he he has not come to the king's table. And then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established nor your kingdom. Now, therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, why should he be killed? What has he done? And then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him. By which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. And so Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. So Jonathan and David come up with this plan. David's going to be absent. He's not going to be at the table. Now, most Bible commentators believe, and I agree, that David did go down to Bethlehem. 
for a sacrifice and feast and came back at the appointed time. In fact, verse 19 seems to support that when it says that he would go and stay three days and then come back to the the place where he hid. And so the first day of the feast, as they're sitting there, Saul, you know, looks over and he sees that David's place is empty and he thinks, you know, well, he must be an unclean, ceremonially unclean. And that could happen, that it was common that a soldier could become ceremonially unclean for a lot of different reasons. And it wasn't an uncommon thing. And, and a person who was unclean, he would have to go and he would have to change his clothes and go through some ritual cleansing and, and refrain from the first night of the feet. And so this is what Saul's thinking. Well, David must have got unclean out on the battlefield. He must have been in some kind of a skirmish and, and, you know, because of that, he was, you know, unclean. But the second night comes along and still there's no David. And so Saul is starting to think something's up here. Something's wrong. And when he asks Jonathan about it and Jonathan tells him that David had gone to see his family, this puts Saul over the edge. When Saul finds out he's incensed, he yells at his own son. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. This was a horrible statement. Because what Saul was basically saying about Jonathan by this statement, he's saying, you're the son of a prostitute. You're the son of a whore. There's no royal blood in you whatsoever. And Jonathan knew from this response that Saul's heart was settled on evil against David. And then when he threw the spear at him, that really made the exclamation point on it. My dad's nuts. My dad's flipped his lid. It was Meyer who said these were taunts that were intended to instill into Jonathan's heart the poison which was working in his own. And the poison was running so thick in Saul's veins, he even throws a spear at his own son. Now, before we leave this section, I want you to see one more downward step in the spiral of jealousy. We've talked about this before. Remember that Saul's jealousy started out with love. He loved David and he loved his ministry. He admired this young man, but his love turned into suspicion. As soon as the the women started singing, you know, that hit song, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. Suddenly, jealousy began to fill Saul's heart. He starts to get suspicious of David. That suspicion turned into a rage and the rage turned into attempted murder. And at first his murder was directed at David, but this time, on this night, it was directed at his own son. Listen, jealousy and anger have a life of their own, and they will take us to places that we could never, ever imagine going. Could Saul have ever imagined that he would try to kill his own son? No way, no how. But he's taken over, he's being ruled That's the slippery slope of jealousy. That's what it does. That's how it affects. We pick it up in verse 35. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David. And a little lad was with him. And then he said to this lad, now run and find the arrows which I shoot. And the lad ran and he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried 
cried out after the lad, Make haste and hurry, and do not delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. But the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. And then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go and carry them into the city. And as soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south and fell on his face to the ground and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another and they wept together, but David the more so. And then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. Since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. And so he arose and departed. And Jonathan went into the city. I want you to picture for a minute in your minds, David waiting there at the stone of Ezel. It's been three days. He's come back for the appointed signal. And there he waits. There he sits. I'm sure the anticipation must have just been tremendous. Just waiting and just longing like someone waits there at the hospital when their loved one is in surgery. And it's a life or death situation. And they they sit there. And I've been in some of those situations. They're sitting with somebody in the fellowship. Maybe you've gone through it, and it's, 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 it's a difficult time. It's a, a time where just the anticipation, the fear, the what-ifs, the whys, the what about this, and all these things start, start playing through your mind, and I'm sure that's where David's at. The anticipation is just amazing, and then finally from a distance he hears his friend is coming out to him. And Jonathan, as he takes out his bow and he takes out his arrows, and he's acting as if he's going to participate in some target practice, and he shoots that arrow, and David anxiously watches it flight, its flight as it arches over him and lands beyond him. Imagine his feelings at that moment. He knew. At that particular moment, he knew the Lord was sending him away. Think about this. Such a small thing. An arrow. An arrow. The signal of a single arrow told David his whole life would be forever changed. He would no longer be welcome in the palace. He would no longer be welcome among the army of Israel. He would no longer be able to go home to his wife or to his father's house. David now knew that he would have to live the rest of his life or at least a long period of his life as a fugitive on the run from an angry, jealous king who was determined to destroy him, who was determined to see him dead. Single shot of an arrow. You know, sometimes our lives can radically turn On one small thing. One night of carelessness can change a young girl's life forever. She becomes pregnant. One night with the wrong crowd may give a young man or an old man an arrest record. It oftentimes does not seem fair that so much in life should turn on such small moments. But a lifetime is made 
of nothing but small moments. Your life and my life, it's like a movie. A movie that's being written. And each day, in each moment, is a scene in the movie of your life, in the story of your life. And sometimes those single moments, those single situations can be a life-changing situation. And now in David's case, it was no chance thing that the arrow fell where it did. It wasn't by chance. Jonathan shot the arrow. But understand, please, the arrow came from the hand of God. Those arrows weren't from the hand of Jonathan alone. He was just the instrument. The arrow was from the hand of God. And it was right on target to show David, this is my will. This is my plan. You know what? God will use different instruments in our lives. Sometimes it's the words of a friend. It's the arrow that points us in the direction where God is wanting us to go. Sometimes it's the words from a doctor. It's cancer. It's terminal. It's going to be a long road. And suddenly God's taking us in a, in a little bit different direction. He's working in a whole different way. Suddenly, just little words like that can just turn your life upside down. Maybe it's the instructions of an employer. Or maybe it's the, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to let you go. And suddenly, in just that moment, just like that, your life changes. Your life goes in a whole other direction. But know this. Behind that arrow was God's loving purpose for David. You see, with every arrow, there's a road. And with every arrow, God is saying, this way is shut. Now come this way. And oftentimes, that arrow might be pointing us to a road that we really don't want to go down. It's a road that seems dark. It's a road that seems dangerous. It's a road that seems mysterious. It's a road that has a whole bunch of question marks in it. But God says, this is my road for your life in this time. Will you walk in it? Will you walk in this road? You see... What God is looking for from us is what he got from his son. As he stood or knelt there contemplating, thinking about, knowing full well the road that was ahead of him. There in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed and he sweat, as it were, drops of blood. And he said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He knew the road. He knew where he was going. And I think it wasn't so much the physical death that he was going to undertake, but it was everything that he was going to go through spiritually. Oh, the physical beating was was horrible. The movie of the Passion depicted a bit of it. Although it really didn't do justice to the beating that Jesus took. Isaiah says concerning the crucifixion that Jesus was marred. Read it there at the end of chapter 52, beginning of chapter 53. That he was marred so greatly that you couldn't even discern that it was a man. He was so disfigured. 
so disfigured. But it was even beyond the physical beating that he took. It, you see, it was, it was the spiritual and emotional sense that Jesus, who was completely perfect, completely holy, utterly righteous, living for his all of, you know, existence of all of eternity and, and, and even before and all of the time that he walked on the earth living in perfect harmony with his heavenly father and then suddenly there upon the cross he knew that he was going to take upon himself all of the sin of the world past, present and future paying the price for all of the sin that he literally Paul would say there in Second Corinthians chapter 5 would become sin He would be engrossed by it to the point where the father would turn his back, unable to look because of his holiness upon his son, becoming their sin as he took upon himself all of our sin. And Jesus crying out at that moment, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Jesus dying there, not of the beatings that he went through, but of a ruptured heart because of the grief. But what did he say? In that garden. Oh, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. And you know what? That's where the Father is wanting us to be. When the road comes, when the arrow is shot, when it brings us to that place where suddenly our life is is turning a corner. Suddenly it's going in a different direction. Suddenly we're we're stepping out into the unknown and it's like, man, I'm in this place right now and Lord, I don't know what's happening and I don't know what's going. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but I see that this is the path that you're pointing me down now. And, And it's dark and it's dangerous and but not my will, Lord, but your will be done. Your will be done. And here's why. He wants us to come to that place. It's because here's what you are resigning yourself to. It's a road that will make you into the person that God wants you to be. You see, for David to become David, the greatest king, the man after God's own heart, he had to walk down this road. He had to say yes to God. He had to accept that this was the road that God had chosen for him. This was part of the plan that God had in mind to make David into the greatest king in Israel's history, second only to Jesus. This was the path. Now I ask you tonight, have you accepted the arrow that God has shot into your life? Have you accepted the road that he's chosen for you? Have you come to grips with the fact that this road is God's will for your life and that you are going to accept it because you know that your heavenly father, he knows best. He does know best. Or has God been trying to point you down a road and you've been kicking against the goads? Remember when Jesus said that to Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus? the persecutor of the church, after he had heard, you know, that sermon by Stephen. And, and a goad was something that they would use to, to prick against. It was, a, it was a sharp wooden stick that was pointy, and they would use it to get the oxen to go in the direction that they wanted them to go. So it was a painful type of a, a, an instrument. 
And when Jesus meets Saul there on the road to Damascus, he, he says, it's hard for you, isn't it, to kick against the goads. It's like, you know, he's trying to go in this direction to, in, to put an end to this new work of the church. And all the while, it's, he's going against the Lord. And, it, and, it, and it, it's like it's hurting him. Is that you? Are you in that place kicking against the goads or trying to worm your way out or buy your way out of a, a situation? Only you can answer the question in your life, in the season where God has you, if you have come to grips in your heart with the arrow that God has shot into your life to say this is the direction. You see, in David's life at this moment, if he lingered after this word from heaven, he would lose his life. He would lose the crown. He would lose all that God had for him. It was of divine necessity that David move. And here's what happened. When David moved, when David left, when David got up from that stone and he hugged his friend and they kissed and then they said goodbye and David went off into the wilderness, he left behind every security that he had. Every prop that he could lean upon was taken away. Everything. You see, sometimes our tendency is to fill our lives with crutches. People and things that we are leaning upon. But sometimes those crutches become substitutes for God. Instead of leaning on Him, we're leaning on something else or someone else. Some people, they turn to other people to be their crutch. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's an inappropriate friendship. You start sharing your heart, fellas, with a a, a gal at work or maybe even a sister in the church. You're married and and maybe you're having problems with with your wife and you start sharing your heart with some other woman. Listen, Jesus said this, where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. Guys, gals, you start sharing your heart, your treasure with somebody else. Know this, your heart's gonna follow. That's how people get into trouble. That's how adulterous affairs take place. That so often is, it's right where they start. Somebody sharing their treasure with somebody else that they have no business doing that with. No business talking to that person in that way at all. And that person is becoming a crutch for them in their lives. To share those type of things with some, they turn to booze or drugs Come home and have a couple of beers. And a guy will say, you know, it's just, man, it helps me relax. Well, try this. Put on a praise tape and take out your Bible. I think it'll help you relax. The Lord can use that. For some, it's working out, man. They're going to go and that becomes their crutch. And it's like to escape the pressure. They're going to go to the gym. Others, they turn to their work. It's not working out. They're just going to work 70 hours a week and escape the pressures at home. But here's the problem. Crutches have a tendency to keep our focus horizontal. And you see, when you are leaning on another person or another thing, your focus is always sideways. It's always horizontal instead of vertical. It's for that reason that human crutches paralyze the walk of faith. It paralyzes it because it puts us on this plane instead of on this plane. And crutches can only offer temporary relief. It's like taking an aspirin that masks the pain. 
but then it comes back again. But you see, God doesn't want you and I to experience temporary relief. He wants to give, per, uh, uh, give a, a permanent solution to the problem. If we will seek him, if we will truly surrender to him, if we are consistent and diligent in seeking his heart in prayer and, and through the word, he promises, I will show you which way to go. I will show you what to do. In Deuteronomy 33, verse 27, it says, The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Isaiah declared in Isaiah 41.10, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and surely I will help you. And surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So in David's life, at this point, Everything is stripped away. It's just David and God. You know what? It's a good place to be in. It's a good place to be in. This would be the training ground. This would be the process that that God would move and use in David's life to make him an incredible man. A man, as we'll see in a couple chapters, who will take and Take a whole group of disgruntled, discontent, in debt, bunch of ragtag renegades and turn them into a mighty, awesome group of guys that came to be known as David's mighty men. Some of the greatest fighters, some of the greatest heroes in the history of Israel. But God had to do this first in David's life. He had to bring him to that place. The chapter ends with these words concerning David. So he arose and departed. David will not return to a quote unquote normal life until Saul is dead and David is king. And that'll be somewhere between 10 to 15 years later. This was a pretty bleak road for David to walk, but it was God's road for him. It was a pretty bleak road, but this bleak road is important in David's life. Because it was in this time that David would learn in all things how to depend upon the Lord. Again, I think Redpath said it well. A throne is God's purpose for you. A cross is his path. And faith is God's plan. What road do you find yourself on? What situation do you find yourself in? Realize, embrace. Okay. This is God's purpose. It is, is, this is where he's taken me. Ultimately, he tells me he's conforming me into the image of his own dear son. That's the throne. How do I get there? Jesus said, if anyone seeks to follow after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow after me. And that situation that you find yourself in, that could be your cross. How do you do it? Faith. Believing in, trusting in, clinging to. Okay, God, you've never let me down yet. You've always been faithful to me. You've never been unfaithful. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to cling to you. I'm going to hope in you. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I just sense in my heart that there are many of us here tonight 
who can identify with our, our brother David. In this moment, in his season of his life, as he is heading down a bleak road, out into a wilderness. And Lord, I know that there are brothers and sisters here tonight who, there's a bleak road before them. A bleak road, perhaps, of staying in a difficult marriage. A bleak road of dealing with a sudden sickness. A bleak road of financial difficulty, of a job layoff. A bleak road of struggling with a rebellious teenager. Lord, these things come into our lives of no surprise to you. Things that you allow to take place because you want to work in us. And you want to use these very things to make us into the men and women that you desire us to be. You're writing our story. Painting on the canvas of our life. That our story might then enrich another's. Help us, Lord, to embrace that road. Your arrow. With our head bowed and our eyes closed tonight. If you're here tonight and you find yourself in a place where there's a bleak road ahead of you, a difficult road, a dark road, a heavy trial that God has steered you into, in the same way that the Holy Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness, you find yourself in the midst of a wilderness. And you're having a hard time embracing it. But you want to. You want to say like Jesus, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And whatever it takes, have your way. If you're wrestling with that type of situation tonight, be it a sickness, be it a relationship, be it a job, the vocational type of thing, I'd like you just to lift your hand, and I want to pray for you. God bless you guys, many of you. Just keep them up. Just in faith, just, Lord, acknowledging this is me. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight. As they just acknowledge, Lord, this is me. God, I pray tonight that you would strengthen them. I pray, Father, that as your word tells us, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. As we've looked at this chapter and studied this event in the life of David, Lord, may it increase our faith to say, not my will, but your will be done. Bless, Lord, my brothers. Bless, Lord, these sisters. And Lord, I pray that in the midst of this walk in the wilderness, that they would trust you, that they would cling to you, that they would rest at their stone of Ezel, the stone that points the way. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness in our lives. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. And If you need prayer tonight, there's some folks up front here that would love to pray for you, lay hands upon you if you have an illness and you'd like prayer in that way. May the Lord bless you. And I encourage those of you who expressed, hey, that's me, that know and believe and trust tonight. God's doing a work. And it's a good work. All things do indeed work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Let's close with a song.